This is Nutshell Politics, a show where we discuss what you need to know about current events, international relations, political conflict, and my favorite topic of discussion, terrorism. The mainstream media isn't always the best at reporting on international events. They often lack depth, context, and understanding, a problem unfortunately driven by ratings. But here, on Nutshell Politics, I seek to fill those gaps, and most importantly, to make sure you know what's actually going on out there. So let's dive in. Hey all, welcome back to a brand new episode of Nutshell Politics. My name is Dr. Justin Kinney, and I am excited to be back on the air with you guys uh, for another episode this week. Now, we're going to be doing a, an episode that's kind of like a this day in history, but more of a this week in history. Uh, this is being recorded and will be released on the week of November the 9th. And that is a particularly important date in world history for two major reasons. And we're going to talk about both those on the podcast today. So what we're going to be starting with is is there's one major event that took place November the 9th, 1938. And then another one that followed that is actually related uh, that took place in 1989, November the 9th. Uh, So both of these events actually took place in Germany. And uh, so they're huge in German history, but they actually had pretty far-reaching implications that uh, impacted the entire world. And so I think they're really important for us to talk about. So we're going to be kind of doing a historical international politics episode this week. All right, so let's uh, kick things off by starting by talking about what happened in 1938. Uh, so 1938 was shortly before World War II, uh, and so Nazi Germany was was on the rise. The Nazis, or you'll frequently hear them referred to as the German Reich, that's R-E-I-C-H, uh, ruled Germany or the German state roughly from 1933 up until 1945. And so Nazi, Nazi Germany is kind of five or six years into their their rule in the state of Germany at this point. And so there is a, a major event that takes place on November 9th, 1930, actually November 9th to 10th, kind of overnight. Uh, it was a, a program that was carried out against the, the Jews in the city of Danzig. Now, before we get too far into what happened there, Danzig is, I, I called it a city, and it, it's, that's because its full name is the Free City of Danzig, but it was actually kind of a, a semi-autonomous, almost city-state that, that existed between 1920 and 1939, kind of right up on the Baltic Sea. Uh, the port of Danzig is actually a city there as well. So the city-state of Danzig is where this, this takes place. And Basically, what happened is that there was a, a series of violent riots that swept throughout Danzig, targeting Jewish-owned stores, buildings, and synagogues, basically using the assassination of a German diplomat as kind of cover for a lot of violence and, and looting, arson. I think almost 100 people died in these events. And it's, it actually goes by a pretty famous name that you might have heard of, uh, which is Kristallnacht, or the Night of Broken Glass. Now, this is a, it was actually called the November Pogrom as well. The November Pogrom, uh, actually, back up, a pogrom is a violent riot. Now, it sounds like the word program, but it's actually a pogrom, P-O-G-R-O-M. And a pogrom is basically a violent riot 
uh, with a specific aim of either just massacring and wiping out an ethnic group or a religious group or expelling them from the area. And so this November pogrom or the Night of Broken Glass or Kristallnacht uh, was a, a pogrom designed to target Jewish-owned businesses and Jews living in the Danzig area. And so, as I said, you know, we had looting, riots, arson, uh, all kinds of mass arrests as well. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 30,000 Jewish men end up getting arrested. And this is where a lot of them end up in concentration camps in, in the long run. And something like 7,000 Jewish businesses end up being either completely destroyed or at least partially damaged. Almost 300 synagogues throughout Germany, Austria, and other parts of that region are also destroyed. Uh, just things get ransacked, buildings demolished with sledgehammers. And as I said, roughly about 100 Jews were murdered. The number is, exact, is not exact. Um, sometimes you'll hear it a little bit higher into the hundreds. Early reports said there was only about 91, probably somewhere in between. But Kristallnacht is often viewed as kind of a, a prelude or a precursor to the infamous Final Solution, uh, which was a Nazi plan for, for genocide of the Jews during World War II, the Final Solution to the Jewish Question. Uh, that's the kind of the official code name for, for murdering all Jews that they could get their hands on. Uh, and so Kristallnacht was kind of the, the precursor event that, or, or the, the prelude as you kind of get into the 40s. So Kristallnacht is um, infamous because of this. And it is one of the, the few times, actually probably the first time, that you saw some sort of event in kind of Jewish-German history that was as widely reported on as this one was. And so this is one of the few times, actually, that you do see the world kind of being let in on or, or you're getting a peek through a window of what was happening in Nazi Germany at that time. Uh, you know, we, we often ask things like, well, how, how did the world let this happen? You know, how, how did they know? And a lot, a lot of times the answer, or sorry, how, how did they not know? And a lot of times the answer is that, uh, you know, this is before social media. This is before uh, TV. You, know, you had radio going on at the time, and that was, that was it. And news traveled very slowly. And so it is at least feasible, although I, I will be very clear this is not an excuse per se, it is very feasible that the average person didn't really realize what was going on. And in fact, there are a lot of reports of when we eventually do go in and liberate you know, concentration camps throughout you know, Germany, Austria, Poland, uh, those areas, the soldiers and the, the liberators on all sides are, are stunned at what's actually taking place. Because even though they had made, heard rumors and reports, there was not a whole lot of proof, I would say, or true uh, belief that this is actually happening. And Kristallnacht is one of the few instances in which we actually could kind of get a brief window into what was happening through this, this kind of overnight period of November 9th to November 10th of 1938. Now, Kristallnacht means crystal night. Uh, that's how it literally translates into English. And it basically, the name comes from the, the thousands and thousands and thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of shards of broken glass that littered the streets after all these businesses, buildings, stores, synagogues were, were smashed to the ground and destroyed. Okay, let's, let's take a couple steps back here. Why did this happen? Uh, throughout the 1920s, we're going to go back you know, about two decades, well, decade and a half, uh, most German Jews were actually fully integrated into German society as citizens of the German state. Uh, you had Jews serving in the German army, the German navy. Uh, they were in pretty much every corner of German business, you know, business, uh, German culture. 
However, this started to change when uh, a man by the name of Adolf Hitler rose to power. Uh, now, he, he was appointed as the leader of the National Socialist German Workers' Party uh, as Chancellor of Germany in January of 1933. And Hitler very quickly moves to introduce a fair amount of anti-Jewish policies and propaganda that, that really alienate and push away the hundreds of thousands of Jews in Germany. And he uses this propaganda campaign as a way to try to blame the Jews for Germany's defeat in World War I. Obviously, it wasn't called World War I at the time, uh, but you know the, the great war to end all wars that they thought anyway. And then the subsequent kind of economic disaster that, that hit Germany and actually most of the world with the Great Depression shortly after World War I. So the German government, through these kind of anti-Jewish laws, anti-Jewish propaganda, under the orders of Adolf Hitler, were designed to cast blame on the Jewish population in Germany, uh, actually the Jewish population around the world, and restrict the rights of Jews to do things like enjoy the full complements of German citizenship, to get educated, uh, to earn a living, uh, these sorts of things. And so we start to see this kind of exclusion of Jews from the, the social life of Germany. Now, many hundreds of thousands end up leaving or trying to leave Germany, but you know, that wasn't always possible. And so there, there were still quite a few Jews and actually a couple other minority groups that were also targeted that remained in Germany during this time period. Now, on November 7th of 1938, uh, there was a man by the name of Herschel, I'm going to butcher this last name, uh, Grunspan, G-R-Y-N-S-Z-P-A-N. Uh, so you understand how I, uh, not quite 100% sure how that's pronounced. Uh, but Herschel Grunspan uh, was a 17-year-old who was part of the, or his family was expelled from Germany. Uh, so they were Polish Jews who had emigrated to Germany a couple decades before, and ultimately they get deported in October of 1938. Now, Herschel was actually not living with the family at the time. He was living in Paris with an uncle, but he he hears about what happens, and he, he is infuriated by this. And so he, on November 7th of 1938, he buys a gun, uh, gets some ammunition, and travels to the German embassy in France. Uh, now, he is taken in to see an embassy official by the name of Ernst von, uh, sorry, Ernst von Rath, and he assassinates von Rath. Uh, he fires five bullets at him, two of which kind of hit him in the, in the stomach, the abdomen, and he eventually uh, succumbs to this. And Grunstpan, again, forgive me for the, uh, the butchering of that name, uh, he, he confesses to the shooting, and he basically says this is a protest against what's happening to the Jews in Germany and uh, is because of the Nazi regime. Now, the German government, because obviously this is one of their embassy officials, uh, is, is infuriated by this, and they start to retaliate. They, they do even more to cut the Jews off from society in Germany, barring Jewish children from elementary schools, you know, refusing to let Jews participate in any sort of cultural activities. Uh, they start banning German newspapers, German ma sorry, Jewish newspapers and magazines in Germany, and basically stripping them of any of their rights as citizens of Germany. So when von, uh, von Rath eventually dies a day or two later, uh, on November 9th of 1938, 
Joseph Goebbels, who is a propaganda minister of the Nazi party, you've probably heard of his la- of, of him at least by his last name. He was a, a Nazi politician and the, the minister of propaganda of Nazi Germany for, for about a decade or so. He was also one of the closest friends and associates of Adolf Hitler. He basically commands the party leaders to organize these riots. And so riots start breaking out in German areas, particularly in the in the the area of Danzig, like I had mentioned. And this is kind of why it gets kicked off. Now, the violence there had not been explicitly condoned by the authorities, but pretty much everybody agrees that they were behind this. Uh, the, the Kristallnacht, the damage, the, the violence, the assaults. Uh, there's cases of Jews being beaten, assaulted, as I said, about almost 100 or so end up dying. You see a large number of suicides, large number of rapes, Uh, that are reported throughout this area. And basically, this becomes a pretty huge black stain on on Germany, basically German culture at the time. And what you see is is this starts to, the aftermath of it starts to expand beyond Germany. This is, again, one of the first times that you really see the outside world getting a peek into what's happening in Germany. Uh, and so you you see, like I say, a German Kaiser, or was I say, a former German Kaiser, Wilhelm II, claiming that for the first time in his life, he's ashamed to be German. Uh, you see Jews begin to emigrate uh, to, to leave the country of Germany in massive numbers, uh, much more so than they even were before, trying to leave the area, uh, most going to other European countries or to the United States. Some go into Mandate Palestine, which is uh, what we tend to think of as like Jordan now. Uh, well, Israel, Jordan, Palestinian territories, that area. Uh, actually, some of them actually go as far as China, uh, about 14,000 end up in Shanghai at one point, uh, leaving because of this. But Kristallnacht actually sparks international outrage. Uh, and so what we see is that newspapers and petitions all around the world uh, start to criticize Germany and criticize the Nazis, uh, saying that basically you know, they've crossed a line here that you can't go back from. Um, and starts to discredit a lot of the pro-Nazi movements in Europe and North America. And before this, there were a lot of movements across the world that were kind of in the pro-Nazi regime before people really realized what's going on and who the Nazis are or who they're becoming anyway. Uh, And this is actually what Kristallnacht actually starts to lead to a decline in their support. And so you can actually probably credit Kristallnacht with part of why the world turns on the Nazis so, so dramatically in leading into World War II. The United States actually recalled, re- recalled its ambassador. Uh, other governments severed diplomatic relations with Germany in, entirely in protest. Uh, newspapers around the world condemn Kristallnacht. Uh, the British government starts some programs to help with re- refugee children. It's, I mean, it spreads around the world, including uh, up to uh, Australia. There, the Aborigines in Australia have a, have a protest march that condemned the persecution of the Jewish people by the Nazi government in Germany. And so this has repercussions and sends waves around the world and kind of changes the, the nature of a couple of things. Uh, so Kristallnacht is often seen as a turning point in the world culture uh, and, and on, on a few different levels. Uh, first, within Germany, it's it's kind of seen as, as the point where the Nazi persecution of the Jews changes from being kind of more political, social, and economic to a physical persecution, beatings, uh, murder, incarceration, looting. And Kristallnacht, because of that, is often seen or often referred to as, as the, quote, beginning of the Holocaust. 
uh, while it doesn't reach the level of the concentration camps later, Kristallnacht kind of kicks off the, the physical persecution and some of the people who are arrested actually do end up in concentration camps. So we, we can somehow see Kristallnacht as kind of this turning point of, of the Holocaust. And while we do eventually, obviously, defeat the Nazis in World War II, there are a lot of problems that kind of stem out of this. You get uh, a divided Germany, the Berlin Wall, that, that lasts for another 60 years. And so you, you end up having a Germany that is essentially not free, at least in part, uh, half of it anyway, for for decades because of some of the things that led up to Kristallnacht. And so in 1938, this, this week in history, we see kind of a, a real, very depressing, very sobering move that cripples a country for, for decades to come. Uh, in the words of a, a historian, Max Ryan, who wrote this, he actually wrote it in 1988, but he was an expert on this period in history. He said, Kristallnacht came and everything was changed. Uh, and with that, I'm going to take a short commercial break and we are going to jump back in on the other side, talking about kind of the end of this, the, the hopeful turn that took place decades later, also this week, and uh, kind of comes full circle on, on freeing Germany. So stick with me for just a minute, and I'll be back with you guys on the other side. All right, thanks uh, so much for sticking with me through that commercial break. We are back, uh, and I'm just going to jump right into it. So uh, before the break, we kind of ended on a bit of a down note. Um, Kristallnacht was one of the most devastating and black marks that you find in the world. Uh, especially when it comes to uh, anti-Semitism, this you know, major act of violence, you know, also known as, as Crystal Night or the Night of Broken Glass, has had a lot of implications throughout the years, and not just because of how it kicked off the Holocaust with you know the start of Jews being arrested and sent to concentration camps and the shift of violence from economic and political and social to physical. But it was also very instrumental in changing global opinion of the Nazis. In the United States, for example, uh, this is kind of the specific moment that came to symbolize uh, Nazism to the, to the American people. And it's part of the reason that uh, or it's part of the way our government sold entering the war to fight the Nazis to the American public. And in a lot of ways, it's actually the, the first reason the Nazis become associated with being evil in the first place. And November 9th, because of that, for, for a very long time, had was a really black, dark mark on the world history, particularly in Germany. However, about six decades later, so about 60 years later, a new event happens, also on November 9th, that changes the way that we have viewed this particular day. Uh, not that it takes away from what happened on Kristallnacht, but the there was a new event that took place, also in Germany, that fundamentally changed the world for good. Uh, November 9th historically has uh, this feeling of, of darkness because of Kristallnacht, but it also is a day of celebration, uh, not only in Germany, but around the world, because November 9th is the day that the forces of the West, the forces of democracy, the forces of liberty overwhelmed and overcame the Soviet Union when the Berlin Wall falls and the Berlin Wall comes down, ending the, the nightmare that had been 
existing in Germany ever since the end of World War II. So a little bit of history first. Uh, obviously, with World War II, the Nazis are defeated. But that doesn't actually mark the end of problems in Germany as the German country gets split. And in particular, well, you see it splits in a lot of areas. And in particular, Berlin is split as well. But this is just a symbol of a much larger political boundary that kind of divides Europe into two separate areas uh, from the end of World War II in 1945 all the way up until the end of the Cold War in 1991. But 1989 is really the, f the first big movement. Uh, I, I wouldn't even go that far because there, there, there were signs beforehand the USSR pulls out of Afghanistan uh, in 88. But in 89, the fall of the Berlin Wall was, the, was a huge, major, pivotal world event which really was the, the first marker of the, the true fall of the Soviet Union and the fall of communism across Eastern and Central Europe. And so while November 9th historically has been a very dark mark on history, in 1989 that changes and the, the global power structure between dictatorship and democracy ends in Berlin as the Berlin Wall comes down. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that story for the rest of the episode and kind of how November 9th has been redeemed as a, as a date in, throughout history, uh, while, while not uh, taking away from the darkness that happened in 1938, but 1989 really revamped and, and reimagined what this date looks like to the world uh, as, as a marker of one of the, the falls of, some, of one of the great true world evils in the Soviet Union. Okay, so let's um, take a few steps back here and talk a little bit about what Germany looked like in that time period between 45 and 89. So the Berlin Wall goes up in 1961 by the, the German Democratic Republic, the GDR, which you may have heard of by a different name because they went by East Germany. Uh, the Berlin Wall becomes the global symbol of the division between the East and the West, you know, democracy and socialism, the Soviet Union, uh, communism, and capitalism. The citizens in Berlin's West sector, so this would be the Western side, the democratic side, essentially lived in kind of an island, just an island of, of liberty right in the middle of the communist East Germany. And for, for decades, you know, this, this wall, which was almost 100 miles long, uh, concrete, barbed wire, East Germans would kind of look over to the, the west side, hoping one day they might be able to escape and get over there. Now, we're going to take a few more steps back here. The two world wars, the First World War in the 19-teens and the Second World War in the 40s, were absolutely devastating to a lot of countries, but Europe in particular saw a, a catastrophic fallout from this. And because of that, uh, the Soviet Union moved very quickly uh, they, they were on the side of the Allies, so the Soviet Union were on our side in fighting the Nazis. And so they used their position of, of victors to basically flip Central and Eastern Asia into more of a buffer zone to prevent any sort of future invasion. Right. So, so the Nazis had tried to move in and, and uh, invade the Soviet Union. Soviet Union helped, you know, they, they fought them off, obviously, with the forces of the West, the United States and other countries coming in from uh, from the other side. And so the Soviet Union builds this kind of buffer zone with Central and Eastern Europe. Now, citizens of the countries kind of between Germany, which becomes the border, and the Soviet Union, all those other countries in the middle really didn't have much of a say in this. 
they assembled themselves kind of into a, a, an alliance of sorts called the Warsaw Pact. And this basically, the Warsaw Pact came to to encompass virtually all of their political institutions, social institutions, and any sort of political or security decision-making took place through the Warsaw Pact as this block of countries. Now, over time, that buffer zone that's built kind of runs into conflict with the Western powers, the rest of Europe, the United States, and that com- that conflict starts to escalate. Both sides start to develop different types of weapons. This ultimately turns into an arms race, stockpiling all kinds of nuclear weapons, thermonuclear weapons. And this kind of decades-long confrontation or standoff between the Soviet Union in the East and the United States and all the other Western countries came to be what's now known as the Cold War. However, uh, and obviously this lasts a long time, right? So 45 is when the Soviet Union first starts to encompass the 61, the Berlin Wall goes up. Uh, The 80s, though, things kind of change a little bit as two leaders come to power, uh, one in the United States and one in the Soviet Union. Uh, So in the United States, we saw the rise of Ronald Reagan. Uh, In the Soviet Union, it was a man by the name of Mikhail Gorbachev. And these two coming to power essentially at the same time brought a lot of different changes to the U.S.-Soviet relationships. Now, Reagan kind of starts off with kind of with a much more hardline stance, which kind of mimics some of the previous you know, his his predecessors. But he actually has, through some kind of surprising means, yeah, he, he actually has some personal contacts uh, that have personal contacts themselves with Gorbachev, and so the two of them start to form a bit of a, a friendship of sorts, uh, which is unusual because obviously the U.S. and the Soviet Union had been at Cold War uh, for a long, long time. But Gorbachev, who is kind of known as being very articulate, kind of a reformer, uh, very personable, he has kind of this foresight and sees the Soviet economy based so heavily in socialism and communism headed for an internal collapse. And so he, he decides to institute different reforms, particularly reforms involving a lot of liberalization of society. And so what he does is he kind of well, I guess I probably shouldn't go into all the different reforms that would take way too long. But but basically, by by instituting or announcing he's going to institute some of these dramatic reforms, there emerges a sliver of opportunity. And protesters throughout Central and Eastern Europe who are not happy with how the Soviet Union has been running things see, see that opportunity and start to grasp it. And you start to see protests rise up all across Central and Eastern Europe. And in particular, there's several, but... Uh, there's kind of two big ones that I think made a big difference. One is the Solidarity Movement, which uh, was in Poland. And then two, in Hungary, you saw the the leadership in, in Hungary start to dismantle a lot of their country's barriers, like physical barriers, but also like trade and other types of barriers to the West. Now, that reform was very much disliked by the leaders in East Germany at the time. Uh, in fact, you actually read some of their writings, and they were pretty horrified by the reforms that Gorbachev was engaged in. And so they fought very hard to change that, or to, to I should say change it, to, to maintain status quo and to prevent the reforms from arriving in their half country of sorts. And so the armed borders of, of Germany became much more armed. They really seek to crack down 
on their population, which is seeing the protests in other countries and starting to feel these feelings of uprising in themselves. Now, what happens is they end up backfiring. This plan to really crack down the borders backfires. It doesn't actually quiet the protests. And it turns the entire country of East Germany into a pressure cooker. And you, you start to see massive protests all across East Germany, Berlin, Dresden, Leipzig. And essentially life in East Germany just comes to a complete halt. Now, East Germany panics, the, the, the leadership anyway, the Communist Party leaders. And so they call a press conference, uh, which takes place early on November 9th of 1989. And they are basically trying to make it sound like they, they basically announced that travel restrictions are going to be not opened, but, but liberalized in a sense. Now, what was intended in this was that it was actually a bit of a deception. Uh, the Communist Party leaders in East Germany were, were trying to make it sound like things are going to be liberalized, when in reality there was going to be a ton of fine print that meant travel would, would pretty much still be not necessarily entirely halted, but, but severely restricted. But the person they picked to announce the liberalization of travel restrictions, and again, remember that was meant more as a deception than anything, he botched the messaging and botched his speech so terribly that it sounded like the East German leadership were opening immediately. And this press conference that he puts out there is broadcast on TV. Thousands upon thousands of East Germans flock to all the border crossings all along the wall to find out if this is true. And because the messaging was handled so poorly by the East Germans, border guards had no idea why they were being inundated by swarms of East Germans. They had no orders on what was coming, no orders on how to handle the people, and they're feeling overwhelmed. Now, one of the, the men, uh, at one of the biggest checkpoints between East and West Berlin was a man by the name of uh, Harald Jager. Uh, he was a senior officer, part of the Stasi, who was on duty that night. And he had been a member of the East German communist regime for a couple decades or so. He'd, he'd been working on the border since he was 18, uh, and he's now in his 40s. And he basically signed up right about the time to contribute to actually building the Berlin Wall. Now, his ideology is actually really interesting. There's, there's been a fair amount of uh, research done onto, onto this man, uh, Harold, Harold Yager, because he plays a pretty key role in a lot of this. And he sees the Berlin Wall as uh, tragic, but kind of a necessary deterrent to conflict. So he, he's basically saying, or his basic belief is that East Germany needs to, the primary overarching goal should be to avoid another war. And so he sees the wall as that deterrent to conflict. He rises through the ranks over the years, starts out as kind of a very low-level record keeper, but moves up. And he ascends to the rank of lieutenant colonel and actually ends up as kind of a deputy head of the, the passport control department. And his job was in many ways uh, a desk job. He's inspecting travelers' papers going back and forth, those who are allowed to cross the border. But because none of this was planned, he actually ends up as the senior Stasi officer on duty, you know, the man in charge, that night. Now, it quickly becomes very obvious to Yager that he and the you know, 60 or so men he has who are guarding the border are wildly outnumbered. Uh, they, they were armed. A number of them had pistols, including Yager himself. And he starts to panic. In his panic, he he places all kinds of phone calls all over the place, trying to get 
new orders, new instructions. In one of these calls, he's on a, a conference call with some of the, his own superiors in the Stasi, and he overhears one of his superiors in, insulting him, actually, basically calling him a coward. He gets very angry. Uh, he's been dealing with this, what he sees as a threatening situation for a couple hours at this point, and he basically hit his limit. His superiors were questioning his ability to, to accurately report what was going on. Uh, he was stressed, feeling threatened. Uh, one of his leaders had suggested he might be a coward. And uh, to top matters off, he actually was feeling quite sick. And it turns out he's actually, um, he actually ends up getting the results of some tests to prove that he had cancer the very next day. So he's under a tremendous amount of stress. And for several decades as part of the Stasi, he'd never disobeyed an order, but he's reaching his breaking point. And this is where it all starts to fall apart for those people on the Berlin Wall. They decide, uh, with, with an acceptance from one of their superiors, that they can allow a few people, often the biggest troublemakers basically, a one-way trip through the wall, no return. This introduced another problem. What the protesters quickly figured out is that the more trouble you caused, the louder you got, the more likely you were to be allowed to the other side. And so things started to escalate. On top of that... Several of the first people let through had been young parents uh, who immediately wanted to just take a look around and then get back to their children who were still in East Berlin, and they had not been informed this was going to be a one-way trip. So all of a sudden, you see people starting to escalate the situation on, on the east side, and those who had been let over are now trying to get back because they wanted to get back to their family members, in particular their children, and they're being told they cannot go home again to their children. Now, Yager is trying to deal with these parents, basically. And this is where he starts to really crack. He'd been skeptical of this plan from the get-go. He was arguing with grieving parents uh, on behalf of an administration and an organization that had just recently insulted him, and he snaps. He decides he's, gonna, he's going to allow the, the young parents to come back, make an exception for them, and come back. However, other people overhear this. Yager's already taken one step on the path towards disobeying this direct order of one-way trips. He decides, we're going to let some more through as well. And this is kind of the one-way trip himself down a very slippery slope that ends with the end of his loyalty to the Nazis, sorry, not the Nazis, to the, to the communists in East Germany, to the entire regime. Things escalate further and further. By 11 o'clock that night, things have gotten out of control. Yager is feeling like he and his men might soon be in, in real danger. And by about 11.30, he calls his commanding officer and says, I'm going to let the people out. Uh, he is yelled at on the phone. Yager doesn't care. He ends the call and he institutes the order to allow the people through. They do decide to open the main gate, but before they could get through it all the way, the entire crowd starts pushing through from the east side and things just erupt into this massive, joyous horde of people pouring through the gate as camera operators and media are filming this flood of people surging into the West. And this is, this actually is fascinating as you start to read into the story. And we could, I could do an entire episode where we, I could probably multiple episodes where we talk about this, but because of, there were so many camera crews there capturing this, the, this kind of ultimately peaceful move to open the gates and, and cross the border gets televised. And all of the superiors to Yager and the Stasi and, and otherwise are caught off guard, especially as you get into the actual Soviet Union in Moscow. 
And by the time Gorbachev actually finds out about the situation, because it's it's you know because of the time difference, it's you know early hours in the Soviet Union in Moscow. By the time Gorbachev just finds out what's happened, uh, it's it's too late to undo without you know some massive massive bloodshed. And Gorbachev, to his credit, uh, decides he doesn't want the bloodshed and he decides to allow it. And this means that November 9th makes history. And so this symbol of tyranny, of division, of the Cold War, you know, the biggest probably physical symbol of the Cold War that exists. From the moment Ronald Reagan said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, to Yager's decision to disobey a direct order from his superiors and open the gate, we see the fall of the Berlin Wall turn November 9th, a day that had been living in, quote-unquote, infamy, into one of celebration, into one that has a happy ending. The Berlin, the fall of the Berlin Wall actually becomes one of the most famous scenes in all of human history. It came down partly because of the, the relationship that Reagan has with Gorbachev. It happens partly because of a bureaucratic accident, the, the mishandled press conference. It becomes... It happens partly because of Yager overhearing his superior officers insulting him and deciding that he wanted to be on a different side of history from uh, from the Stasi and what they come to represent later. And it ultimately ends up leading to a wave of revolutions over the next couple of years that leave the, so the Soviet communist bloc right on the brink of collapse. And ultimately, uh, 1991, you see the Soviet Union fall and a whole, whole new world order comes into play. Now, this German reunification uh, that essentially takes place, well, not formally on November 9th, 1989, it actually takes place uh, about a year later in a, in a legal sense. This moment is the culmination of, of decades of, of economic, social, and political problems that have been plaguing Germany, and in particular Europe, but also the entire world for, for six decades. Uh, you can, you, again, you can go back to Kristallnacht, uh, in 1938, as that moment when the Nazi regime turns from physical, sorry, turns into physical persecution and really starts changing the way that they're approaching the people of Germany, that transitions into the Soviets and the communist bloc splitting up Berlin, splitting up uh, Europe, and ultimately six, takes six decades. But we find the Berlin Wall fall and uh, liberty is restored to Germany, uh, and we see an entirely new world order take shape that had been teetering, or I should say, waiting in the wings uh, ever since the end of World War II, when the world kind of gets split into the West and the East, and the two become united, in, at least for a brief moment in history. And so I, this is why I wanted to talk about it this week, because both Kristallnacht and the fall of the Berlin Wall take place on the same day in history, November 9th making this kind of second week in November one of the most important weeks in all of world history, but particularly in terms of like modern history and the shaping of the world and what it looks like. Because if, if you don't have Kristallnacht, then it's, it's very difficult. It will be very difficult for the West, in particular the United States, to convince the people that it's worth joining the fight in World War II to take down the Nazis. If we don't do that, who knows what happens to Europe? Who knows what happens in World War II? Uh, who, who knows what happens to the Nazi regime. And then, of course, the Berlin Wall completely revolutionizing what the world looks like. 
you know, ending the Cold War, uh, ending the Soviet oppression of much of Eastern and Central Europe, as well as other parts of the world. And in, you know, actually, a year before, we actually started to see them pull out of Afghanistan and the Middle East. So the Berlin Wall as well, if it weren't for you know Reagan and his, his friendship and his relationship and the moves he makes to help Gorbachev with a lot of these reforms that lead to protests, if it wasn't for essentially bureaucratic mistakes, and if it wasn't for the bravery of, of Yager to def- defy a direct order and allow this, you know, the world would be a very different place. And so I, I really wanted to just kind of focus on those two big moments in history because it is a really important week in uh, in the world, uh, historically speaking. Uh, so with that, we're going to go ahead and shut down the episode for this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope that was really interesting for you. I, I don't do a ton of like historical politics on this show, but I think this is a really... A uh, good one and really interesting one to talk about. And frankly, these are bo- both stories uh, that for very different reasons should not be forgotten. Uh, Kristallnacht is, is a, a horrifying dark spot that leads to things that are unthinkable um, in terms of the, their evil. But it also is a, a moment that allowed the West to really see what was going on, too. Uh, and then, of course, the fall of the Berlin Wall, ending a, a tyranny of oppression that had taken place, at least for the moment, in East Germany, but you know, throughout a lot of Central and Eastern Europe as well, and ultimately completely reshaping what the world looks like. If you're interested in getting in touch with me, uh, you, whether you want to talk about this, suggest a new episode topic, uh, if you want to uh, support me or advertise on the podcast, there's a few different ways you can do it. Uh, I have a Twitter account. You can find me on Twitter at Justin R underscore Kinney. You find me, please hit that follow button and get in touch. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook at J. Robert Kinney. It's the name I write fiction novels under, but I am happy to talk with you there about anything else as well. But please go to Facebook, find J. Robert Kinney, hit that follow button or that like button. Uh, if you're interested in, in more on the support side, you can always find my Patreon account on, on Patreon uh, or just, just contact me through one of the other ways, talk about advertising or anything else as well. Uh, but with that, I think we are out of time. So I am going to call today. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed that episode and I will talk to you guys next time here on Nutshell Politics. My name is Dr. Justin Kinney and I am out in three, two, one.